The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au all right, here we go. Right on. Take your Bibles, please, and go to the book of John. John chapter 4. And read this little passage in uh, Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well. It's a great little passage here, and you'll pick up right away what we're going to look at for this evening. is to do with God, who is His Spirit. And uh, beginning at verse, well, you know what? Why don't we read the whole story? Because it all fits together and it gives you context as well. So beginning at verse number 7, the Bible says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do know. Sorry, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I think in the Greek, it's actually I am who speak to you. It's it very clearly the name of God there. 
We talked last week about how God is incomprehensible, that God can be known but never fully known. His incomprehensibility simply means that we cannot know everything about God, not now or not for all of eternity. No one can ever fully know or understand all of one single attribute of God. If you spent from now until the end of eternity, which there is no end, trying to understand all that there is to know about the love of God, God's love, You never get to the end of it. There's always more to know. God worked to reveal something of himself to us. He did it through a number of different ways. Through creation. You walk outside into the outside. You walk and look into all of God's beauty of creation. Look up into the night sky. Look down into the veins of the base of your wrist. Look at how your hand moves. And you see something of the glory of God there in his creation. God revealed himself through scripture. We call this specific revelation we call creation general revelation and God revealed something of himself in the inherent faculty of a man's conscience or a person's conscience we talked last week also about how the bible characters recognized and named God for his attributes we saw that the different names of God describe something about God no one name describes everything about God they all give you some aspect of God El is the word for God, meaning supreme excellence and greatness. Elohim is the idea of God in plural form. And the Old Testament writers would put Elohim with a singular verb beside it to represent singular and plural together. It gives the idea of the Trinity very clearly. El Elyon, God Most High. Yahweh Rohi, the Lord my shepherd. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is my peace. And all through the story of the Old Testament, as they came across a new understanding, not a new understanding in the sense of new revelation, but a new way of relating, understanding that way, they would often name God. The Lord is my banner. The Lord who sees, and so on. But ultimately, God is known only through Jesus Christ. That's why he came, to make known the Father to us, that we might know God uh, as best that we are able to know, given the finiteness of our minds and hearts and souls. Jesus came to explain and reveal God the Father to us. The The apostles carried on and explained all of Christ's work and all the implications and all the outworking of Christ's work to us. Now, theologians... Like, see those stack of books there? I brought them out here to show you something in just a sec. But those guys with lots of time on their hands and lots of research ability have written great explanations and discoveries looking through the Bible to organize and categorize and summarize all the truths about God. Although I do find it interesting that my Bible is this thick and the theology is often twice as thick. But what they're doing is they're giving us ways to understand who God is and what he's about. So theologians have gathered and organized and categorized all the Bible says about God to describe God as fully as possible. Not fully, because no man can ever describe God fully. He's incomprehensible. Theologians use what they call attributes or characteristics to help us understand who God is and what God has done. The attributes of God... And his essence of his being, they're inseparable. Now, you can take one of us, like we could take Radu and take a chainsaw and just chop off his arm and heal it up nice with some stitching, and his arm would be separate from Radu, and he would still live and function. 
We could take another chainsaw and cut off one of his legs. And while he couldn't walk and couldn't work, he'd still live because we'd fix it up. And you can take Radu apart down piece by piece until all there's left of him is a torso and a head, big smiling head, right? And we would say, Radu is in parts, but he's still there. Now, God is, you know, it's kind of a grim illustration I bet I give you. But what it does get across to us is that God is simple. You cannot take one part of God because one part of God is all God. And his attributes can't be looked at like bits of God that are stuck on. So when you're trying to understand God's attributes, and there's a reason why we're doing all this, and I'll explain that in a sec. When you try and understand God's attributes, imagine in your mind's eye, all you ladies who are wearing diamond rings, right? When you get that ring and it's been cut on all those different facets, and what they do is they put a little, that, that luge thing in their eye, and they look at the ring under the luge, and every time they turn it around, there's different angles and different sparkle of light and different reflections. Now imagine the biggest diamond, say a diamond cut without hands, and we're standing looking at it, and all those different facets of the same single stone are those attributes. They're connected. They can't be taken apart. You can't take one facet off because that would break the diamond. They're all facets. And as you turn a great big beautiful stone around and the light hits it from different directions, it sparkles and flashes and different colors come out. It's the same single stone and every facet on that stone describes something different about that stone. And that's what the attributes of God are like. So they're not parts of God that you can cut off and put away. God is connected. He's, he's inseparable from his attributes. Okay? Having said all that, the attributes of God are generally divided into two groups. We call them incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. I realize this is review from a few months ago, but there's a reason why I'm doing all this. The incommunicable attributes of God are those which have little or no sharing among God's creatures, especially men. For example, God is eternal. No beginning, no ending. He is simply eternal. You can't say God was properly. You can't say God will be properly. All you can really say is God is. Okay, He's eternal. We are created. We have a beginning point. At that moment of conception, God imparts a spirit into that little tiny, tiny life, and it becomes a living soul there, and it exists from that point onwards. That spirit or soul, that person will exist all through eternity, either in hell or in heaven. So it's eternal in a sense from a point onwards, but not forever. So God is eternal forever, but we begin and then carry on. God is unchangeable. Okay, We are not like that. We said last week that we're all constantly changing. The older I get, my hair is going whiter and whiter by the day. I noticed I'm getting older and grayer. We're constantly changing. God does not change ever. God is omnipresent. That means that he is always present everywhere. And we are only present in one time and in one place and in one space. And as my dad would say, sometimes I struggle to even do that. I'm not always there. I'm tuned out somehow, you know. But, but God is always present everywhere. God is spirit. We're body and spirit. The communicable attributes are a little more the things that we share with God. For example, God is omniscient. He knows. You and I know things. In fact, every day our knowledge is building and growing. 
We will never be all-knowing like God, but we will know some things. And all through eternity, that knowledge, I believe, will grow. God is truth. We don't know truth when we're born, but as we begin to grow, we learn to define things that are true. God is wisdom. We become somewhat wise. God is holy. We are made holy, but never to the same extent that God is. God is righteous. We will... We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but we'll never act in the same degree of righteousness that God does, even though we have Christ's righteousness applied to us. So there are some attributes that we share. So they say the incommunicable ones are the ones that we least share with God, and the communicable ones are the ones that we more share with God. Not Perfectly not shared and not perfectly shared is is a sort of a sliding scale. So you go to the incommunicable attributes, we hardly share any of those with God at all. But with the communicable ones, we do share some of those with God, and he is able to give them some things to us. Here's a question. Why are we doing this? Why not do a study on, I don't know, the leaves of Scripture, or why don't we do a study on something else? Why look at the attributes of God? And I told you about a little book I read last week, The, the Life of God and the Soul of Man. Uh, this, I'm going to read you two little sections out of it, very short. This is the guy that writes in paragraph-long sentences. But listen to this. This is what he said. Um, he talks about the excellency of divine love. He says, Love is that powerful and prevalent passion by which all the faculties and inclinations of the soul are determined and on which both its perfection and happiness depend. Do you know what I mean now by a complicated read? There you go. But this is is the main point, okay? He says, the worth and excellency of a soul may be measured, or is to be measured by the object of its love. Read again. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loveth mean and sordid things doth thereby become base and vile. So you love sinful things, you're going to become a sinner. Okay? He says, but a noble and well-placed affection doth advance and improve the spirit unto a conformity with the perfections which it loves. Now you know why it took me so long to get through the book. Okay? Even though it's only 100 pages long. What's he saying? He's saying this. If we love sin... We'll become sinners and sinful. We are sinners by birth, but the more that we love those things, the more we'll become like them. Conversely, the other way, if we love God, we will become more godly. The more we love God, the more our affections are placed on God, the more we become like Him. There's a verse we'll read to prove it too. The other passage is this. He says, he's talking about how to, to develop the love for God in the human heart, and he says... To inflame our souls with the love of God, let us consider the excellency of his nature and his loving kindness toward us. That's one little sentence. I'll read that again. In order to inflame our souls with the love of God. In other words, in order to make the love for God burn hot within us, he says, uh, let us consider the excellency of God's nature and God's loving kindness toward us. In other words, if you want love to grow, love for God to grow in your soul and deepen and burn, he says, consider and think deeply about God, his nature, and his perfections. That's why we're doing this. 
Why? Because we want to be a godly people. We want to be a people who know and love the Lord. And we have to know who God is and what He's like. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul said something very similar to Henry Skugel. He said, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. We're being changed from the inside out into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. What's he saying? The more we study God in Scripture, the more we're being changed in that image. That's why I want us to go through these attributes and look at them and understand how they work for our lives. Moving on. We want to look at tonight the fact of the spirituality of God. Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. People often wonder, what's God like? What's God made of? Or like little kids ask their parents, who made God? Right? What is he made of? Is he made of flesh and blood like us? When I was a little guy, and even as an older Christian, I often think about God as an old man with a flowing white hair and a white beard and white robes. And I had this idea of a very kind, gentle, grandfatherly kind of person. That's not what he is. Is he made of flesh and blood? What matter, what materials form God's being? Is God made of matter at all? Is God pure energy? There are some lofty thinkers that would say that God is pure thought and pure energy. That's not it at all. Jesus himself says, we read that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The fact that God is spirit, I know this is getting complicated, but hang on. It means he's not physical. God does not have hands and feet and a body and legs and arms. And you say, just a minute now. The Old Testament often describes God's nostrils flaring in anger and God's eyes looking all over the earth and God's hands reaching out and God's all kinds of attributes of physical parts of God. But the reality is that God is not physical, he's invisible, but what God has done is he's given us ways to understand him. We should never think of God with the sense of size or dimensions, even an infinite one. Listen to what the psalmist said. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, if I go down to the very bottom of the deepest cavern underneath the ocean, he says, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. The you are there, it has the idea of all there. God's omnipresence, all present everywhere. Uh, King Solomon said this, when we read it last week to read again. He says in 1 Kings 8, 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. God's being cannot be rightly thought of in terms of space. We ex- understand his existence as spirit. He is spirit. God forbids us from even thinking of his being as similar to anything else in the physical creation. Uh, we read in the Ten Commandments in Ezekiel, uh, not Ezekiel, Exodus 20, verse 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, earth beneath, or water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the earth, third and fourth generations, and so on. God's being, 
His essential mode of existence is different from everything that he created. Okay? To think of God in terms of anything else in the creative world is to misrepresent him, to limit God. Uh, imagine, remember the Israelites, they made a, a golden calf. And I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to portray God in the sense of strong, like a, like a young calf with great strength and all full of life. But to say that God is like a calf is a massive false statement about God. It limits God's knowledge because a calf has not much knowledge. It limits God's wisdom because calves are some of the dumbest creatures on the earth. It limits God's love and mercy and omnipresence and all those other attributes. God has made all creation, all creation, sorry, that each part of it reflects something of his own character. So the Bible often describes God like this, it's by comparison. Okay, so God is my rock. Does that mean that my God is literally a rock? No, it's just a way to describe and understand something of God's character. God is my fortress. But not actually. I mean, it's just a way to understand that God is a safety for us. God is my banner. He's not literally a flapping flag in the breeze. He means that God has conquered. God is a lion, but he's not a four-legged, furry thing with big teeth. It means that he is regal and stately like a lion walking back and forth. God's an eagle. God's a consuming fire. All those things give us a way to understand God as existing in a form like anything else in creation. Sorry. Sorry, jump sentence there. To picture God as existing in a form like anything else in creation is to think of God in a horribly misleading and a dishonoring way. So if you think of God like a lion, but all as a lion, you totally misunderstand and misrepresent God. We just understand something. A lion gives us some understanding of what God is. God eagerly desires for his people to think of him as he is and to worship him for all of his excellence. That's why we come here. To worship. Why? So we can get fed and filled up and pumped up and primped up for the next week and go off on our way? That's a byproduct. We come together primarily for one reason, to worship the living God, to recognize who he is in the glory of all those different attributes and the work that he has done both to create and to save his people. God desires for his people to think of him as he is and to worship him for all his excellence. Uh, God is angered when his glory is diminished or his character is falsely represented. God, this is what he says about himself, um, so watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is jealous for the affections of his people for us to understand and glorify him for who he is, as he is. He wants us to worship him as God not as some other form of creation. God is jealous for the fame and the glory of his own name. For God to be represented as anything other, any created thing, is an insult to God. That's why God was furious when they created a golden calf. And Moses said, Behold, your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And there's a little gold calf sitting there. God was insulted because it totally misrepresented who he was. You cannot, 
they were not allowed to have a graven image of God because nothing could represent him properly. God does not have a physical body. God is not made of any kind of matter like the matter, like physical stuff like the rest of creation. God is not merely energy, a thought, or some element of creation. God's being is not like any of these. God is spirit. Totally different. I'm going to read you a, a definition I got from uh, Wayne Gruden, which is that big purple one up on top there. This is what he says. He said, God exists as a being that is not made of any matter. God has no parts or dimensions. God is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses. So taste and touch and sight and hearing and all those other senses cannot perceive God. God is more excellent than any other kind of existence. God is spirit. God is unlike anything in creation. God's existence is far superior to all material matter existence. Before there was any creation, God existed as spirit. His own being, this is so cool, we think we're the reality. And the, the, the heavenly things are the picture or the type. It's actually the reverse. The heavenly things, the spiritual things, are the reality for which we are just a dim and poor reflection of it. God existed as spirit. His own being is so real, so powerful, so knowing that he was able to cause everything else to come into existence. It's like when a, um, a woodworker, when I was a kid, uh, I was a carpenter, as you know, and uh, my first boss was a woodcarver. He used to love to take chisel. And he had all these gouges and, and tools, and he could carve and he'd make things and one day he had this boot this it was like a carving of an old workman's boot and the the bottom was all hanging off and the, the it was all busted and the laces were all over the place and he had carved the entire thing out of cedar of a block of cedar and he the man with his knowing and understanding skill and talent had taken a block of wood and shaped something that was like reality but was not reality it wasn't a real boot it was a block of wood you couldn't put it on right in a far greater, far more massive way, infinitely greater, God being all real as spirit created everything that has matter. And matter, as we know, is decomposing. It, it breaks down. We, we get older. Things fall apart. Now, some, some science is going to go, no, matter doesn't actually break down. It just changes form. You're probably right. What I'm saying is that matter is not the same. It's not as real as God is. God's spirit is so much more real than anything material. God has created and given us a spirit. Now, think of that. Why would God do that? Why would God reach down and take the clay of the ground like that potter's clay and mold it and shape it and fashion it and form it into a man and then lean down, as the Bible says, and breathe into his nostrils and breathe the breath of life into him. And man became a living soul or a living spirit, right? He's given us a spirit. It's not the same as his spirit, but it's similar. So God as spirit can exist in all places everywhere at the same time. We can only exist in this little tiny, you know, uh, 18 inches diameter by 6 feet tall block of space, right? And I'm not all there some of the time. So that's the difference. We're not omnipresent, but he is. So the spirit that we have in us 
is similar to his spirit. And there's a reason why he gave it for us so that we could commune and relate with him, which is what Jesus was saying when he said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, it is in our spirit that we are united with the Lord's Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Doesn't mean that the man's spirit sort of morphs into and connects itself to God's spirit and he sort of shares it. It means they have one. There's unity. There's fellowship there. There's a relationship set up there as God's spirit joins himself with man's spirit. God has given us spirits in which we worship him. As Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is what Philippians 3.3 says. He said, Paul's writing, he says, For we are the true circumcision, in other words, the true Jews, who worship in the spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We worship in the spirit. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, we'll get to that. It is in our spirit that we pass into God's presence at death. Okay, Jesus on the cross, when he was dying, he said, I cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As a man, truly, fully man, he had a spirit. And as he died, he committed that spirit to go and be with the Father. That's why I could say to the thief on the cross, today... I tell you the truth, or I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Meaning, in their spirit, they would be together in God's presence. Okay. He also says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, that when we die, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. In other words, the, the body goes into the ground and decomposes, but the spirit goes out to be with God. Philippians 1, 23 and 24, this is Paul writing, And you hear the heart of the apostle in these words. He says, I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is so much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Meaning what? He knew when he died, his spirit would go to be with God. And that faith relationship, his spirit and God's spirit, would be given way to sight, and he would be able to see God as he is, see Jesus Christ face to face. Again, you're asking, what point of all this? What are we supposed to learn about this? Is it, it's great to know all that, but so what? How does that help us live? Second Corinthians 3.18 again, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The point of our doing this is so that by thinking deeply about who God is, we will become more like Him, more like the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding who He is, understanding that Jesus Christ, as God, is spirit, but he took on human flesh. Think of that. The infinite, eternal God took on human flesh, was born into this world, understood a new growth and change, understood and knew what it meant to get up and grow up and got older. He understood what it meant to be tired and hungry and all those other things about being human. 
The point about doing this is to think deeply about God that we might become more like God. The point is that by considering who and what God is like, we will have our spirits fired up for a deeper love for God, to understand who He is, to love Him more. It's not love that... If when I first started dating Heather, I wanted to know everything about her. What is she like? What's her favorite color? Where did she go to school? What are her parents like? What, is her, what was her father like? Was he strong on curfews or not so strong on curfews? You know, all those different questions you want to know when you start dating a young lady. But I wanted to know her. If I had just said, well, you know, this is great. I know your name. Good enough. That wouldn't be very loving. I actually want to know about her. I want to understand who she is. So I can tell when she looks at me with those looks that, you know, that wives give their husbands from time to time. I can communicate, understand what she meant by that look. I wanted to know her. And it's the same with us and God. By knowing who God is and what he's like, our love for him will grow deeper and our ability to worship will climb because now we'll understand more of God, know more of him. God, who is so unlike us, desired for us to know him. God, who is infinitely pure, holy, and righteous, just, loving, and gracious, he desired to make us alive so that we might have fellowship with him, to love him and to be like him. The point is also that we grow in aspects of our spiritual life. In this case, I want to look at worship and how this affects how we worship. Notice what Jesus said. I didn't notice this today. I'm not the brightest guy in the world, and sometimes I miss things, but this thing just stuck out like a sore thumb when I read it this afternoon in my office. He said to her, Jesus said to her, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I had not noticed the word true. You say, what's the big deal? If he says there are true worshipers, what by implication does it also mean? There are false worshipers. There are worshipers who are not worshiping God the way that God desires, right? So it's possible for us to think we're worshiping, but we're not. And understanding who God is as spirit enables us to worship him better. Okay, so the question is, what does it mean to worship God? I don't very often do this, but I took a stab at it today. I tried to figure out a theological definition. So here we go. Worship is the reverent spiritual communication of my love, devotion, submission, and satisfaction to God. Get it? It's a spiritual communication. Jesus said, those who worship him must worship in spirit. It's my spirit communing with God and, dis- and re- expressing and relaying to God in a spiritual manner the fact that I love God, that I'm devoted to him, that I'm in submission to him. It's a reverent thing that understands who God is. And it's a satisfaction that says that God is enough for me. That's what worship is. Worship must be under the leading of the Holy Spirit. They worship in, they must worship in spirit. And I think he means both ways there. It's a spiritual communication and it's spirit-led worship. When we come together as a church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening like this to worship, my prayer is that God would lead us all in worship. 
And my hope and my prayer is as we sing the hymns and pray the prayers and read the scriptures and and preach the Bible and all of that, that God is drawing from every heart in the room streams of worship up to his name. Love and joy and sorrow even in worship that goes up to God as you are responding to what you're hearing and what you're seeing. Worship must be led by the Spirit. Worship is only possible through the satisfactory, sacrificial work of Christ on a cross. In the Old Testament, what had to happen in order for them to worship? Anybody remember? What? Very good. Sacrifice. Why did it have to be a sacrifice? Right. Okay, so they come with an animal. Thing breaks in, you know, put the hands on the head, take the knife, cut its throat, blood pours out. And as he puts his hand on the head of the animal, he would, he would confess his sins. And then he would kill that animal, and the, the blood shed by the animal didn't atone for anything. But what it did do was it allowed the father to look down and say, Aha, one day my son will shed his blood. It pointed towards Christ on the cross, right? So he came and he offered a sacrifice that death was in his place that he might approach on the basis of that sacrifice. And when they finished the sacrifice, he would take a memorial portion, a small piece of the animal, and he would put it on the fire and he would burn it. And then he would sit down on the ground and take that animal and cook it and he would eat it in the presence of the Lord. Why would he do that? Because the eating of that meal was a symbolic picture of fellowship. Like when we sit around the table as a family and we all eat a meal together. Now, in our family, when we eat a meal, sometimes you hear dead silence because, you know, one son is not so happy with the other son and the other son's not so happy with dad and dad's not so happy with the third son. And it's just all this kind of, he's eating, right? And there isn't all that fellowship the way that it's supposed to be. But the ideal is... That when we have a meal together, it celebrates the fellowship we have with God. I love the breaking of bread, the communion service we have, because it's a reminder of what Christ has done. And we have fellowship with God through that sacrifice. I'm getting sidetracked. Let's go back to the main point. Worship is only possible where there is a spiritual relationship. It is only possible to worship God once we have been made alive by God as a work of His Spirit in our hearts. In other words, you can come in here. It's possible to speak prayers, but without being spiritually born again, it's just words. It's possible to sing all the hymns and the songs of the Christian faith, but without being spiritually born again, they're just words sung to a tune. It's possible, brothers and sisters, to worship God without sound or movement. Sometimes we equate things that we shouldn't equate. Like I hear the singing, the worship part of the service, and I go, no, that's not right. Because the whole service is worship. The prayer is worship. The reading of Scripture is worship. The preaching of the Word of God is worship. And the singing is also worship too. What they are... Think of it like a bus and uh, my speaking like a train and you're praying to yourself like an airplane. What are the bus, a train, an airplane all have in common? They're all vehicles, right? They're ways to express something. So music is a vehicle for worship. 
Prayer, speaking those words of prayer to God, is a vehicle of a way to express what my spirit, my heart, is feeling and expressing to God. It's also the way I hear what God is saying is in my spirit. So worship can be without any sound or any movement whatsoever. But also, the presence or absence of sound or movement does not determine what is or is not worship. Here I'm about to make a very controversial statement. Brace yourself. You can worship God with your hands up in the air, or you can worship God with your hands at your side. This doesn't mean or change anything if it's not here. And so people say, oh, why don't you raise your hands and worship? In your, well, in our church, we all raise our hands. And I go, good for you. That's great. It's biblical. The Bible says lift up holy hands in prayer. Go ahead, lift them up. But here's the thing. If it's just this, I'm just putting my hands up in the air and, and wearing out the muscles under my arm because they're getting tired now from holding them up. right? But if it's a spiritual expression, if my spirit is lifting up to God in true worship, whether you do this or not, doesn't determine worship, but doing this is one way in which we worship God. Worship can be, uh, you can worship God with singing, with loud music, or in absolute silence. It's not the presence or absence of sound that determines what worship is. It's a spiritual thing. God is spirit. He's given us a spirit. He works in us to make that spirit alive. And once that spirit's alive, it can commune with God, whether you're shouting or absolute silence. And I think we often misunderstand what worship is and we equate it with music or we equate it with a place. You can worship God in one of the greatest cathedrals in the world. There's great big high, you know, two or three hundred feet high ceilings and all the stained glass and the woodwork and the checkered floor and a beautiful old carved pulpit. You can go in there and you can worship. You can walk into the bottom of a crawl space and you can worship. It's got nothing to do with the place. It's got very little to do with the music. It's got very little to do with who you're with even. You can worship with thousands of people. And you can worship with two or three gathered together. I will also say this. God saved us into a community of believers. God did not save us to be alone. It is possible to worship God in solitude, but listen to this. It is not possible to worship in isolation and separation from the church because that is disobedience to God. Now, I hear people say all the time, I love Jesus with all my heart, but I can't stand the church. And I go, you got a real problem. Because the Bible says that he who hates his brother whom he is seen, how can he love God whom he is not seen? That's not a strict translation. That's just a very loose one. How can you say, I love Christ when his body is attached to him? And worship, it happens as part of a community. Now, if you're a part of this church and you go home on Monday morning and you get up early in the morning and you go out into the field and you sit there and you worship God on your own, God bless you. That's, that's, you, that's good. That's great. Go for it. But you can't separate yourself from the church completely and say, I'll worship God whenever I want, but I'm not going to any church. Because that's disobedience. And disobedience will break that fellowship between you and God. Make sense? 
All right. Worship is a spiritual communication of our spirits with God. We use music. We use verbal, audible prayer. We use the reading of Scripture to glorify and honor God. Worship is led by the Spirit. It draw, he, he is a person, draws our hearts up to God in worship, love, and joy. I'll give you one other very practical way to use all these studies. When you begin to pray in the morning, there's the old acronym, A-C-T-S. You guys heard that one? Acclamation, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, right? That's how you remember it, just a basic pattern of prayer. Acclamation means worship. You know what a great way to worship God is? You can pick up a little book called uh, The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, or you can take notes from this, or write down, or look into most theologies, all the different attributes of God. And you begin to reflect on them and worship God in terms of those attributes, I'm telling you, your prayer life will be so richly blessed. This is the God that we love and we serve. This is the one we're singing songs to, but not just words and guitar, but words coming from a heart that's in love with God. That's the goal. That makes sense? Very good. It is time to, to wrap it up. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you and we praise you, O God, that you are nothing like your creation. But Father, we thank you too for the scriptures that give us those analogies from creation to understand you. And Father, when we think about our God is a lion, a regal, kingly, stately lion. Our God is a rock, absolutely sure and steadfast and solid unshakable and unmovable. Father, we give you thanks that you are God who is our shepherd, the one who gently leads us and feeds us and guides us and shepherds us towards Christ-likeness. Father, we thank you for that name, Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. Father, we thank you for the God who sees, the God who is our banner, who conquered everything. Father, there's so many different names that, that go a little way to describe who you are. But Father, we also give you thanks this evening that none of us will ever come to a full and complete understanding of who you are, but that you are so much different than us. But Father, you have communicated with us. Father, we thank you for the beautiful reality that you have given us a spirit to dwell within us. And Father, for those who know you, you have made that spirit alive. And Father, we thank you for the worship we can enjoy, both as a corporate fellowship, as a church together, singing songs of praise and praying together and silently communing with you as a group. And Father, we thank you for the beautiful reality. Father, the Lord Jesus walked into the temple. And he turned the tables over and he drove the animals out. And he said, you made my father's house a house, a, a den of thieves. And then he went outside and gathered his disciples together and taught them that he was the new gathering place for prayer, he himself. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that whether we're driving in a car or walking down the street, whether we're in a group or all on our own, we can commune with you. Our soul can go up in worship. Our hearts can be lifted up in prayer. Father, help us to be true worshipers of the living God and not worshipers are just coming and going through the motions, going through the actions, singing the songs, but no reality behind it, praying the prayers, but no faith behind it. 
Father, I cry out to you that you would take those who do not know you and, Father, open their eyes, draw them in close that they might know you and walk with you and that their spirits might commune with you and enjoy the fellowship that you created us for. Father, thank you for the fact that you created us and designed us to have a relationship with you, an intimate, close fellowship and relationship with the living God. Father, we plead with you that we would all enjoy this, that we would mine and search the Scriptures to know you, like we were reading this morning, that they might know the truths there and then teach them to the children. Father, we pray for us as men and women, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, and young people too. Father, we pray that we would all be striving to know you more. Father, we ask you these things. We plead with you for your blessing on our church. Lord, we thank you for our time of fellowship today and tonight. And we ask you for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.